it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. Ha. This sound like theme music. Motivation to grind and get you through it. Church. Unbothered, never losing. Check the score. Jamel show improving. Trophy. Don't make me tell you 50, 11 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word, how I live it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. A couple of reminders before I get to word of the week. Make sure you download and listen to the first two podcasts that have launched on the Unbothered Podcast Network. That would be the Black Girl Bravado and Sanctified. I know you're probably sick of me reminding you, but I will do so until I'm blue in the face because these podcasts are absolutely excellent. Listen to them, continue to support the Unbothered Network, and just as importantly, follow them on Spotify. Speaking of support, my memoir, Appeal, out now, available wherever books are sold, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your local bookstore, make sure you cop one or 10. And by the way, if you want an autograph version of the book, go to premiercollectibles.com. I signed a thousand copies for this outlet, so it is legit. You can buy it from there. And if you haven't already, make sure you also follow Jamel Hill is Unbothered on Spotify too. Thank you. Now let's get down to it. The word of the week is freedom. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. Huh? Yeah. The day I was done fully recording last week's podcast episode with Notori Naughton is the same day that Brittany Griner was released from a Russian prison after being wrongfully detained in the country since February. Now, Griner was arrested at a Russian airport for allegedly possessing vape cartridges that contain cannabis oil residue. She was given a nine year sentence. And for months, United States authorities have been trying to get her out of prison. But that only was going to happen via prisoner swap. You know, immediately from the beginning, in case you don't know, Brittany Griner was considered to be a political pawn by the Russians. The United States had to give up Victor Bout a notorious arms dealer known as the merchant of death who already was serving a 25 year sentence for conspiring to sell tens of millions in weapons that U S officials believed have been used to hurt Americans about already served more than half his sentence. And he was scheduled to get out in 2029. Now Griner being released should have been cause for widespread joy and just celebration about every single American should have cheered her release probably before she even got on her 18 hour flight back home, geopolitical Twitter and prisoner swap release Twitter already had combined to basically diminish and denigrate an American being set free. Of course, Donald Trump could not wait to piss in everybody's cornflakes. He called Greiner a quote, American hating basketball player. Naturally, he suggested he could have gotten a better deal. The foolish, uninformed rants of the former president are sort of expected. But for such a negative sentiment around Brittany Griner being released to kind of fester, it immediately put into context how little a black life is worth. Conservatives and others who did not know the name Paul Whelan, who was another American wrongfully detained in Russia, where he's been the last four years because of espionage charges. Suddenly, everybody has so much to say about Paul Whelan. The juxtaposition of a former Marine, a white man against a six foot six lesbian basketball player who plays in the WNBA, 
and has been outspoken in support of the Black Lives Matter movement, who's questioned why the national anthem is being played before WNBA games and even went so far as to choose not to be on the court when the anthem is played. No kneeling, no turning her back, just not there. The strong suggestion is that Whelan's life is worth more because he fits the criteria. He looks the part, white, male, former military. And I say this not to throw shade, but to give full context. Understand that Whelan received a bad conduct charge from the Marines before getting caught up in Russia. They got him for attempted larceny, three specifications of dereliction of duty, making a false official statement, wrongfully using another social security number, and 10 specifications of making and uttering checks without having sufficient funds in his account for payment. No judgment, but sounds like Paul Whelan was kind of scamming. Either way, he deserves his freedom as well. But once again, white America is dictating what patriotism is and who deserves to be considered an American. This is how the conversation around Colin Kaepernick's protests in 2016 turned into a conversation about disrespecting the flag instead of what it should have been about, which was police brutality and racial oppression. The same goes for Brittany Griner. The woman has represented this country and won gold medals for it at the Olympics. She, like so many other black people in this country, questioned why this country isn't living up to what it said in the brochure. Questioning the patriotism of black people is just a disgusting and absurd notion. All black people have done is fought for this country to be the best version of itself and hold itself accountable for how we've been treated here. Many of us have exercised the most fundamental right of Americans, which is using our platform to speak out because we know so many of us don't have that luxury. America served Brittany Griner well. They gave her what she'd been earned, her freedom. The word of the week. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. And now on to today's show. A lot of things I'm looking forward to seeing over the holiday season a lot of movies different television programs series and near the top of the list is the whitney houston biopic which hits theaters on december 23rd my guest today has the honor and the enormous responsibility of playing houston in this biopic and while this is her first lead role in a major film she ain't new to this she starred in the Star Wars franchise, also appeared in the brilliant series Master of None, and she has a new film that will be coming out soon after the Whitney Houston biopic that is directed by Zoe Kravitz, and it's already in post-production. And she stars opposite Channing Tatum. All signs are pointing strongly northward for this one. So coming up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered, Naomi Aki. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. 
We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. So among the many reasons I wanted to talk with you, Naomi, um, I've been a big fan of your career and everything you've done, but you also have the same name as my grandmother, who's no longer living. <laughs> yes. Listen. <laughs> yes. A shout out to all the Naomi's in the world. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yes, a strong, very powerful group. Now, was your name biblically rooted? Is that? I think so. My dad used to be like, yeah, your name is, is in the Bible. I believe it means pleasant. <laughs> That's what I've been told. I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, but the, the my thing is, my full name is Naomi Sarah Aki. That's two biblical names. Sarah means princess. But Aki in Grenada, where I'm from, is a type of lizard. So essentially, I am the pleasant lizard princess, which I think is quite cool. <laughs> <laughs> if I said that was a movie role, it actually would not sound bad. It's like, oh, she could be the, no, no. <laughs> the pleasant lizard princess. Like, that's my next role. Yeah, like, like a kid's show or something. <laughs> yeah. Correct. Before we get deeper into, obviously, I want to dance with somebody and some of the other things that you've done in your career. I'm going to ask you a question I ask every guest who appears on Jamel Hill is Unbothered, and that is, when did you become unbothered? If I'm utterly, utterly honest, I'm still on that journey to becoming unbothered, if I'm being really honest, but it has begun. I think um, in the last few years when things started really popping off more in a bigger way, and I, I found opinions from people who I might not even know occurring more and more. I kind of realized I had a decision to make uh, about how much I let other people's thoughts about me control what I do with my life. And actually, the universe has a really funny way of uh, magnifying things that you haven't fully dealt with <laughs> earlier on in life. And um, I think I already had that issue before I was, you know, where I am now. I think um, that worry that I, I needed to keep everyone happy and not step on anyone's toes or make anyone upset I and mean, people please was a it's a big part of my journey of life so I'm still learning that well it is a, a process it's not just like one day you snap your fingers and it's like oh I don't really care about what these people say <laughs> yeah. or anything like that especially in an industry like yours where yeah subjective judgment is what you're subjected to frankly all the time but it, it is interesting because I, I know you like you're you're a celebrity who's not on social media it seems like you really wanted to keep what is a lost art, I think, now in celebrityness, which is mystery. So what made you make that choice that you were going to, in some ways, limit the access that the outside world had to you? The beginning of it started around the Star Wars time. Um, for that, you know, my Instagram was mine and not, not many people were interested in it. When I found out I got the part, I was really scared about um, what happened to uh, Kelly Marie Tran. And so to kind of save myself from any hurt, I got off of it before anyone even knew really that I, that I was on it at all. And that did me good. And I found in that time where I wasn't on Instagram that my ideas of my body shifted back to normal. My jealousy kind of got back in check. That feeling that what I was doing or where I was wasn't at the right level as other people stopped or, or at least slowed down. and. You know, I, 
I then was convinced, rightly so, to be honest, to to go back onto Instagram when when Star Wars was in promotion mode, and that really helped them. And I wanted to do my best to sell that film properly. But after the film was done, lockdown happened straight afterwards. And what did we all do on lockdown? Do you know what I mean? Yes, yeah. So, <laughs> we were really, really on Instagram then. <laughs> you know, in that time, I found myself again getting back into that pattern. And it was something that, you know, I just don't think it's healthy that whenever I was on my phone, my thumb would like automatically go to press the button, even if I didn't want to use it. And I don't like the feeling of something outside of myself controlling me. And then again, the same pattern happened again, you know, body dysmorphia, comparing myself to others, feelings of jealousy. And, you know, those are human feelings, but it's not something that I want to come from an app on my phone. So when I found out I got the Whitney thing, you know, I was already kind of off of the idea of Instagram because I was putting stuff on there that didn't mean anything to me. That was just trying to get attention from people. It wasn't the truth of my life or where I was at. And so, yeah, I, I came off when I found out I got Whitney and I was like, actually, I like this more. I like myself more. And, you know, my, my job is to create stories. And I feel like if people know too much about me, of my day-to-day life, the, the magic of storytelling dies a little bit. That's just for me. I, don't, I really don't want to judge anyone else who uses it because I understand that it's, it's a brilliant tool. Um, I just didn't know how to use it very well. Mm. I have so many questions about I Want to Dance with Somebody. The enormous uh, biopic that you have coming up where you're portraying the Whitney Houston. (laughs) And so I'm so interested and fascinated by this process of you becoming Whitney for the big screen. So as much as you can take us through what the process was like, I guess the number one question people want to know is vocally. Yeah. How did you train for this role? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, from the get go, I was like, okay, there was two things that I never thought I would really do on screen with one you know, was sing in that kind of way or attempt to sing. I always knew that Whitney was singing all the way through, but you know, I was also aware that there was moments where I would have to sing. And I thought maybe I would do a, you know, a sing in something, but not right next to, <laughs> next to Whitney. Whitney, you know what I mean? There was that. Um, also, I've never played an American person before. This was my first time. And I wanted to be really specific, as specific as I possibly could. And I was also really aware that Whitney's voice vocally changes throughout the years. She she naturally gets older. So, you know, your voice gets lower, but also because of lifestyle and vocal damage, there was like a kind of huskiness about her voice. There was a raspiness that started to grow, which is in such contrast to the kind of clear bell-like voice that she had when she was 19. Those were all important details that I think tells the story through her voice. So it just started with, I ha- I'm not going to lie, I had three different dialect coaches during the process of this film, which was amazing. They helped me at different stages. I started with an amazing dialect coach called Tangela Large, who kind of helped me get the basics of, of the American accent, of Whitney's accent. Um, And then I moved on to Denise Woods, who helped me in the late stages, and then Bridget Jackson, who came with me on the shoot and and was there to keep an eye on it. And these are three black women. And what I realized actually was you're hard-pressed to find um, black female dialect coaches, but they're out there and they don't get as much attention. Not as many people know that they're there as they should. And that's why I'm saying their names too, because I 
you know, as much as possible, I want to blow them up and say thank you so much because I got a bigger understanding of the African-American culture by learning the accent from these women and a huge appreciation. Yeah, and then there was the movement side to it. <laughs> Man, like, there was, but then the movement kind of commented on the vocal stuff and the vocal stuff commented on the movement. And actually they're all so interconnected. It's a really fascinating journey. And like from my like nerdy actor brain, it was the stuff that was really like, I, I could stay there for, for months and months and months. And, I, and to be honest, I did. I, I, was, I was in prep mode for between the UK and the US for about eight months, just working solidly on that. Wow, that seems very intense. Now, I know you talked to people who knew her. I know you talked to her longtime friend and one-time partner, Robin. I know you talked to her brother, I believe it was, as well. Was there anybody that you, you know, wanted to talk to? I mean, obviously, Whitney herself would have been the number one person, but, but aside from Whitney herself, was there any person that, of her surviving friends and families that you wish you could have spoken with as you prep for this role? Yeah, you know, I, I actually didn't get a chance to speak to, to Robin. Um, I read her book about Whitney and it was actually a really interesting exercise because I read Robin Crawford's book, which is Whitney from her perspective as her friend, as her lover, as her support system. And then I read Sissy Houston's book too. And that was from the mother perspective. So I was trying to find all of these different viewpoints of Whitney so I could pinpoint <laughs> how if, if I can see how different people saw her then I knew how to collect all of that information to be honest with you I was pretty privileged when it came to access to people and, and what took me by surprise the most really was that I guess it's because it's the entertainment industry and I was filming in Boston there was and this is a you know a big film a lot of people are involved I was able to meet so many people who were cross paths with her just on set <laughs> like and it's really lovely like when you get to a place where because you're playing Whitney, people are eager to get that connection back. You know, that they, they came up to me and was just like, I met Whitney at this point and I, I remember that she did X, Y, and Z and she said this and this made me laugh so much or, you know, that kind of stuff. Janina Lee, who worked in um, makeup, actually worked with Whitney on her last tour and she was there every single day. Tisa Howard as well, um, who was head of makeup, these are women who were around Whitney or knew people intimately connected with Whitney. And, it, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's an amazing thing when you get to sit with these people and vibe off of their energy because that's what I kind of needed. And it, was, it wasn't even so much of a always talking about it thing. It was like a feeling thing <laughs> as well. Like what I really like doing when I, when I talk to people about Whitney is not necessarily like obviously the stories and, and stuff are important, but I watch their faces and I like feel their vibe to see how they like move and smile or frown when they're talking about her. Because how people feel, like how someone makes you feel, even if they're not around, is a thing that is everlasting. It's the truth. I was really lucky, man. Clive Davis, Ricky Minor. I, I love that man. I love me some Ricky Minor. It must, in some ways, be difficult because. We, as much as the public thought we knew, there was still a lot of mystery around her. Because I, I remember the very first time that I saw her, it was the You uh, Give Good Love video. And the way they tried to position her as like a pop star that was kind of a goody-goody girl and, you know, American princess. And then 
I can't quite recall the moment the turn happened. I know her marriage to Bobby Brown was part of it. But when we all figured out that Whitney Houston was hood, we were like, oh, shit, Whitney Houston is a home girl. (laughs) That was a very distinct moment. Like, oh, I didn't know that Whitney, okay, (laughs) that New Jersey is in the building. (laughs) It's coming through. (laughs) It's coming through. So I guess how, as an actor, do you approach that part of it is that there's still a lot about this woman that is a mystery. Yeah, that was the most fascinating part. We ended up, you know, and it comes from Sissy Houston's book where there's a separation between Whitney Houston and Nippy. And so some scenes belong to Nippy and some scenes belong to Whitney Houston. And actually what I try to do, and I'm, I'm still not fully sure, like I, I've seen the film and, I, you know, other people will be able to tell me better than I can because I'm too close to the material. But like the idea of code shifting was really interesting to me that she maybe morphed herself from one type of person to another, dependent on who she was with out of, a, you know, survival mode, out of um, a need to present yourself in a way that is um, appealing um, and palatable for people. And that contrast is really interesting because I think I have it too. I think a lot of black women have it, to be honest, because even talking to you now, like, I'm from East London and I know that in the last week I've been talking with my best possible voice. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And I don't know why I do it, but like literally just before we got on this, I was calling my sister and I was like, babe, like you look wicked. Like, wicked. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and so it's, it's within all of us that I did. But what burden does that give? And I think that's the bigger question for me that I was looking at with that is, what burden is that when the world sees you in one way, but you're actually something else, or maybe you're a mixture of the two and you don't know necessarily how to marry those things together. You know, even the whole idea of Whitney Houston was daunting, but it was so freeing for me to be able to take her off of the pedestal and really look at her as a person like me (laughs) for a second. I don't have rather the singing skills that she has but I I identify with so many of the things that she was dealing with in her life just as a person so how did you land the role what was that process like did you audition yeah Yeah, yeah, like what was the what was it (laughs) (laughs) I was actually working on two projects so it started in like summer of 2020 and I was working on a project in the countryside in, in the UK and um, they call me up and they're like, "Nay, do you want to audition for this Whitney Houston biopic? And I was like, uh, yeah, but like, what part do they want me to audition for? And they were like, Whitney Houston. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I thought, don't be silly. <laughs> for one, I don't look like uh, I've got a gap in my teeth. We're not the same build. I'm from Britain. Like, this is silly. What, why? <laughs> they, they really convinced me over time just to like, give it a try because I was aware that the powers that be were auditioning everyone. Like, so I was like, okay, you know, why not? It's, you know, good to get yourself out there. You know, if, if it's not this, it will be something else kind of attitude. And I just started sending in self-tapes and it was lockdown at the time. So I had a lot of time on my hands. And then, you know, it just, they kept on coming back and being like, okay, cool. Like give you a few notes and like, let's have a conversation. And suddenly, like, I'm blinking and they're sending me, you know, someone to give me fake teeth, <laughs> you know? And, like, and then they're flying over from, from the U.S. to do a screen test. And still at this point, I'm like, yeah, but they're going to figure it out <laughs> at some point. 
there was a moment in the screen test, however, where, you know, I'm, I'm dressed as close as I can be to Whitney um, in the I Will Always Love You video where she's got the black suit on. And I'm singing alongside Whitney, I Will Always Love You, that the drum beat one, the doom, and that part. And I swear to God, like, there's only a few moments in my life where I really remember, like, spiritual moments like this. I did it, and I went, oh, man, I think I got it. <laughs> and that was the moment. That was a moment. And I forgot about it afterwards because I usually do. But I was like, oh, I understand. I, I think I get this part of her. And, and maybe I understand why they're, they're asking me to, to, they keep on asking me to audition. Yeah. And then I got the part while I was working on Master of None. So I was, I was still working on Master of None with Lena and Aziz. And yeah, I found out I got it and then had to go straight back into work and not tell a soul. <laughs> Do you think that that mentality helped? Because you went in there, it seems like really underestimating yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think that actually helped? Because maybe it allowed you to be more freer with your audition or your self tapes or whatever. Like how much did that help you? Yeah, I think it helps a lot. I did the same thing with Star Wars. I don't do it on purpose, but I think I'm, I'm maybe I'm, I'm realistic and maybe hyper-realistic, maybe a little bit too self-deprecating. But when I am relaxed, I think I'm, I'm freer and, and it, means that at least for me I'm not putting too much of my like I need this energy <laughs> into something so I think it helped because I was quite relaxed during the whole thing and was like okay well you know we'll see, we'll see what happens I mean and the closer it got was probably the more anxious I got that that it could happen and then I was like oh my gosh what would I do if I actually <laughs> if I actually got it how much have you thought about what Whitney Houston might think of this biopic when I, I once I was talking to Ricky Minor, um, this is right at the, you know, still in prep mode. And we were talking about Whitney and like, he was telling me stories and it was really beautiful time we spent together. Um, I said, Ricky, if you can channel Whitney right now and she can tell me something about this, like, what would it be? And he stopped and he was just like, if you're going to tell the story, tell the damn story. And I, I looked back and I was like, all right. Okay. And there was a mantra I used to have. It was only small two words. I'd just be like, okay, Wit. Because I know her nickname's Nippy, but I, in my head, I call her Wit. And I was like, okay, Wit. I can tell a story if I can't do anything else. I'm, I'm not good at much else. I'm not going to lie to you. But I can tell a story. And with, with the script that I had, you know, I was like, this is a resource. It's not telling her whole story, it's not going into everything. But if I can use this as a tool to express some of Whitney's internal world, maybe I can do something good here. And I hope that Whitney looking down on this can see the effort put into that and the um, love and, and empathy and compassion I have for her and be happy with that part. <laughs> Even though you, you had this, obviously the Star Wars success and um, Master of None, a lot of people are characterizing this season of your career as your arrival moment, but what does the moment right now feel like to you? Quite strange, if I'm being honest. I'm really like, I know I'm a whole actor thing and all of that, but I'm not really, um, but I struggle a little bit with sustaining the kind of public figure part of it. And so this part of it um, is alien to me. I don't know if I believe in like, this is my moment kind of uh, attitude. <laughs> I'm a little, I think I'm a little bit um, too shy about that kind of stuff. 
I want to enjoy it and I want to celebrate it because I'm proud of having, you know, gotten through this process and, and made something that um, I, I'm, I'm proud of. But there are so many beautiful moments that I want to have in my life. And a lot of them have not much to do with this amazing, like big stuff and more about like ordinary, every, <laughs> everyday stuff, if that makes sense. This is big. And I understand that like logically for my career, but I'm really in a space right now where I'm like, what else do I want to do with my life? Like my life life. Who do I want to meet? Where do I want to travel? What do I want to learn that is outside the realm of acting? Because I've, I've done this for so long and I love it. And I want to keep on mastering my craft. But at the same time, the time that you spend on this, and this is another thing I learned from Whitney, is like when your passion becomes your job, then it is your job to balance your passion with your life. <laughs> you know, they're two separate things. I, 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 I am trying to balance that. Yeah, it sounds like, based off what you said, that... Um... There's a difference between acting and celebrity. Yeah. Uh, those are very different. Okay. And so a lot of, yeah, a lot of actors that I meet and interview love the acting part, love the work part, yeah. focusing on your craft. The part that can be tricky to balance is the celebrity fame part, because that forces you to do things that are not naturally intrinsic to your personality. Yeah. And, and that's something I think I've always kind of been slightly uncomfortable. But I think there are people, some people who are amazing at it, like genuinely like, can I sit you down and take some notes kind of stuff. Um, but for me, I, I just like making stuff. I like making stories. I like collaborating with people. You know, I, I want to be a writer. I want to be a director. I want to be able to disappear, you know, have, have the work speak for itself, you know, talk about the work. And just keep on pushing. Hey, listen, I'm a big fan of Sade. One of the reasons I am is because that woman disappears every 15 years. You don't hear nothing about her. <laughs> yeah. You don't even know what her real voice sounds like. <laughs> you know, you want to hear something crazy. My dad's wife is her cousin. No. I'm not even lying. What? Have you ever met her? Uh-uh. What? I think my dad did once at a barbecue or something. But Yeah. <laughs> that's unbelievable I, she is definitely one of the people that if i ever saw in real life i would freak the fuck out because like i was like For sure. i was like she walks around amongst us she just like living right like, she ain't exactly. exactly uh listen it's a few more things i want to ask you about but we're going to take a very quick break and we'll be back with more with naomi aki Game Pass. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
So a few nights ago, I couldn't sleep. I remember the time exactly when I woke up. It was 3.15 a.m. and I was pissed because I had to be up the next day for an excruciatingly long day. I flipped through the channels and came across a movie I'd never heard or seen before. And I got a story to tell about this whole movie watching experience. So the name of the movie is called Betrayed and it stars Deborah Winger and Tom Berenger. Now, for those of us who grew up in a certain time, these were pretty well-known stars. And what got me to watching this movie was that I hit the info button to read the description, which read, an FBI agent becomes romantically involved with a white supremacist. Full stop. That was literally the first sentence. I was like, oh, I got to see where the white supremacist love story goes. This movie was made in 1988. So sensibilities were different then, but that does not entirely explain the shit show that this movie was. For one, there were two black people in this movie. This is a movie about white supremacy and racism. Allegedly. One of the two black people was a young black kid that a group of white supremacists hunted down in the woods because this is what they did. They hunted down black people for sport. The other was a fellow FBI agent who definitely acted all the way like an op. Deborah Winger is the romantic love interest in this movie. She's the FBI agent that falls in love with Tom Berenger, the king white supremacist who is running an elaborate white supremacy ring where he has judges, cops, all the usual suspects involved in his network. And because the families in his hometown are losing their farms, they are conveniently blaming black people and the Jews for taking away their American way of life and not the well-connected, well-financed white men who are playing on their worst grievances because they don't want them to ever get the weird idea that the primary cause of their misery is actually other greedy ass white men. They don't want them to figure out this caper, which has been so obvious for centuries. But I digress. So here's essentially the plot. Naive ass white woman in the FBI. Think Clarice Starling and Silence of the Lambs. Only the difference is uh, this movie betrayed preceded Silence of the Lambs. So you could argue that Silence of the Lambs was maybe borrowing a little bit from this movie. Anyway, naive ass white woman starts hooking up with the white supremacist. And she tells her bosses that Ku Klux Klan Kenny isn't who y'all think because he's suspected of brutally murdering his ex-wife because she found out that he is a neo-Nazi. In fairness, other than hitting a few make America great again talking points, Tom Berenger doesn't come off initially like he's murdered anybody or that he's really a racist. He's more like diet racist, throws in a couple talking points about his farmer friends, again, losing their farms and their way of life dwindling. That whole economic anxiety bullshit that is used to mass racism but then one night, Tom Berenger's character goes full on white domestic terrorist. He invites Deborah Winger to go hunting with him and his buddies. And it turns out they ain't hunting deer or cattle, but a young black man that they have taken hostage and now released him in the woods with a gun so that when they murder him, they can't be accused of murder. But actually, it will be self-defense. It obviously doesn't hurt the fact that they have the county sheriff also on the hunt with them. Just saying. Even though they called this a hunt when it's 511 of them and one black dude. Anyway, because she's undercover, Deborah Winger can't completely be as appalled as she's actually feeling. And they even tried to goad her into killing the young black man. She didn't. But that ain't really the point. How do we go from our last date being eating barbecue at the county fair as a family date 
to suddenly hunting Negroes for sport. And that's literally what happened. They were at this barbecue at the county fair having the time of their lives being as wholesome as apple pie. And it went from that to let's go hunt a Negro. That shit was crazy. And from the moment that happened, the movie got even crazier. The white folks just started dropping racist slurs everywhere. Every other minute. Whole time I'm thinking, who in the fuck in Hollywood greenlit this white supremacist love thriller slash love story? I don't feel bad about giving this spoiler alert, but Deborah Winger shoots Tom Berenger as he was attempting to assassinate a political rival of a friend of his who was fueling his white supremacist network. This dude gaslit him the entire movie because he just wanted political power and Tom Berenger was too damn dumb to realize what was being done to him. Movie was wild. The message wasn't necessarily about how fucked up white supremacy is, but the message seemed to be if you fucked around and squeezed your eyes real tight and ignored a whole bunch of white supremacy red flags, you could fuck around, fall in love with a KKK member that you might have to eventually murder only for your entire FBI career to be ruined over it. And then you go wandering off into oblivion. Good times. And now back to more with Naomi Aki. Besides the Whitney Houston biopic, there's another project that sounds really great. I believe you've already filmed uh, with Channing Tatum, directed by Zoe Kravitz. Pussy Island. Pussy <laughs> Island. OK, I was like, I knew pussy was in the title. I was like, what? <laughs> so but it, uh, just based off the plot that I read and, and um, obviously who's in it and for Zoe Kravitz to be directing it, it sounds amazing. So, you know, Zoe is like you guys are kind of in that same age bracket. So like what did you learn from her as a director? Oh man, I didn't anticipate that we would speak so much the same language and have so much in common. Um, obviously, upbringing is totally different, but how we felt growing up was was similar. We really connected on how we like to create. Some of her directorial skills that I don't even think that she's fully aware of is that she's able. To, she's very good at imagery. She's detail oriented, down to where the chair should be, a strand of hair, kind of stuff. But I think that also um, translates to um, imagery that can spark inspiration in an actor. So she was very good at using a few words to encapsulate the theme of, of a scene or the, the feeling of a shot. Um, and that's very much how I act. Like I like keywords. <laughs> Give me a reference to. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I saw that on episode 19 of a thing. OK, I get what you mean. And then I can I can riff off of that. I've never seen anything like it. Considering this is her first film, the script that she has written is multi-tonal and funny and wild and kind of fearless, actually. Like, I haven't read a script that has a black woman at the forefront that is like this. It sounds like that you want to make that transition, too, of being a little more behind the scenes. So from that standpoint, did you see... In terms of like what you can bring as an actor that will inform you as like a producer and a writer and how do those things all work together for you? I've been thinking about this because, you know, taking more, especially when you're when you start like leading films as well, you're so much more involved in like bigger conversations. That I really just was not aware of coming up in the business. Story structure is something that I understand as an actor, like how to get from A to Z. And what is needed to fill that emotionally and but also like movement wise, what is interesting for an audience member to see. I studied 
theatre. But, you know, I, I went to theatre school and so I'm, that part of it was all theatre. And, and theatre, especially collaborative and devised theatre, is really about, like, taking apart a story and figuring out how to make it clear, entertaining and effective for an audience. And you can feel it in your body as an actor. And I think that now that I'm writing and hopefully one day directing, I think I have a feeling in my body of where a story needs to go emotionally, but also kind of like logically there are, there are still things I'm learning, but there's an instinct there. I I still can't, can't quite put my finger on it. And I definitely still need a lot of help with the things I'm creating right now. Um, but you know, who doesn't need help? (laughs) You know, like I'm, I, I'm a baby at this kind of stuff. And I actually never thought I would get to a point where I was like, yeah, the acting stuff is great, but I want to try more things because I've been in love with acting for so long that I, I just didn't assume that I would want to do anything else. But yeah, here we are. Could you envision yourself maybe one day fully leaving acting behind just to be behind the camera to direct, write, produce? I could see that. I think, you know, again, maybe I'm like being self-limiting, but I think that it's, it's dependent on my life experience. I could never say for sure. But I think you have characters in you that need to be expressed. And somehow, if you're in the right place at the right time, the universe knows which ones are for you. But that doesn't necessarily last forever. And I think I'm in a stage right now where letting go of certain (laughs) ideas I I think I thought I had about where my life should go are starting to unravel. And I'm like, actually, anything is possible. It's absolutely possible that I will go, you know what, I've done enough with with acting and I, I'm happy with what I've made and I want to move on to something else. Like, but also, you know, maybe not. I don't know. One of the more interesting things on your extensive resume, and I hope it was true, not and somebody didn't just plant some false information, but you were once a hot dog vendor. Yes. <laughs> Is that, that's true. Okay. What was going on there? Tell me about that experience. While I was a job in actor, I didn't have time to do a full-time job. So like working at night was the easiest thing to do. And so for a while I did hot dog (laughs) vending at like places in East London, like in Hackney and stuff. It was like, it was cool. It was like for the cool people who go to the cinema, but it's like, you know, themed and and shit like that. So there was one time, oh man, this man made me vex. I must've gone, put out all the chairs and whatever, set up the cinema too. Then I'm serving the hot dogs. You know, people are getting the hot dogs. They're all happy. Um, And we get paid. And now look, I'm, my, my time is expensive. I don't care if I'm getting paid a hundred quid <laughs> for the night or whatever I'm getting paid now. <laughs> you say I can leave at a certain time. I'm leaving, right? This guy, this boss guy like us, he's like, okay, well, can you like put the chairs back in? And I looked at the clock and I was like, dude, this is one in the morning. You said we'll finish that one. I don't know what's happening. <laughs> and he was like, Rare tear tear, well, I was going to pay you overtime. And I was just like, no, you wasn't. Don't lie. And then essentially, and like I I got around to it. I had to like pack up the chairs, whatnot. He pays me my money. And I that that was around the point where I was like, either I make this acting thing work or I have to quit and get a normal job. Like I can't be, I can't be having arguments with no hot dog vendor bosses. In my 20s, <laughs> it's not a good look. <laughs> when is the last time you've eaten a hot dog? No, I'm done. <laughs> oh, good God, yes. <laughs> yes, I bet. I was like, something tells me you probably hate the smell of hot dogs and or the idea of eating one. <laughs> it's not It's not cute. Yeah, man, I had some really random jobs. 
which now I look back on and laugh. I was like, I did the charity, you know, when you stand in the street and you, do you want to apply for this charity? Like everything, everything you can think of just to keep afloat. What was the closest you ever came to quitting acting? Um, just before Star Wars, it was quite mad, actually. I had this moment. So I had just done Lady Macbeth and I then suddenly had no auditions, like nothing coming through. And at the time still, especially in Britain, you know, there wasn't at the time a lot of parts for, for black women. And it's still quite difficult now, but it's getting better. So I, I've done Lady Macbeth and I have nothing. I have below zero <laughs> pounds in my bank account and I'm so tired at this point and acting is expensive when you're trying to get off the ground and I, I turned to my dad and I was like look I don't know what to do here but I'm I'm at the end of my tether I ended up watching the Dark Knight Rises and there's that bit in it where he's trying to climb out of the <laughs> the prison but he's got the rope around him oh the prison yeah yeah mm-hmm. and he keeps on jumping and then the guy in the bottom of the pit is like it's because you've got the rope around you you're either gonna make it or you're not but you have to take off the rope because it's a safety net so i watched that now because i'm like in my like woo-woo i'm a woo-woo kind of girl i was like mm, this is telling me something so i turned to my dad and i'm like dad this is what i'm gonna do i'm gonna quit all my extra jobs at the time i was working in a pub and a few other things and I am going to try acting for one more year. If it doesn't happen, then I'm going to stop. I'm going to go back to university or whatever and study and do something different. Um, and I said to the Lord, I was like, Lord, I'm giving you one year. If something don't come through, I get it. It's not for me. Quit my job. And four months later, I got the Star Wars part. Wow. That is, um, first of all, great usage <laughs> of that analogy and applying it. Like, that was tremendous usage right there. So... I know Star Wars is a very interesting franchise to be a part of because of how people culturally feel about Star Wars and they have some rabid fans. And it was really disappointing to see uh, Moses Ingram, who obviously uh, was in the Disney Plus Obi-Wan Kenobi series, how she had to deal with a lot of like racist messages and for her portrayal, uh, I believe, of Reva. What would you say your Star Wars experience has been like and have you experienced any of that? I didn't experience any racism up front. Um, I think that I was very surrounded by other cast members who I think bore the brunt of it much more than I did. But the experience of, of coming into a franchise like that as a person of color was interesting, for sure. Because I was very conscious of the fact that those parts usually center around uh, a white person usually a white man, and if not that, a white woman. And that's why, you know, um, I think this Andor coming, that's come out and stuff, which is great because you've got people of color at the forefront. I think it's just really interesting with some of these franchises, this um, idea that even in space, the heroes are always white. And I had it, I had a little bit of a, especially at the end, feeling of like, was I just... um Christmas stuffing, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't know. And, you know, again, like, obviously I'm really grateful for that opportunity. It, if I didn't have that opportunity, it wouldn't have allowed me to be here because that, that uh, provided a huge amount of um, exposure that I had never had before. But I think beyond Star Wars, even there is a feeling of like, ah, 
we have to be careful as people of color um, not to feel or let that feeling of being someone who checks a box get in the way of our artistry. And I've had that insecurity for so long. Um, and, and, you know, almost people telling me that, people that I know for a long time being like, oh, you're, I've heard shit like, oh, you're so lucky because like, there's not a lot of black roles out there. So like you get more parts than <laughs> your average white person or you only got the part because I was told by someone and we, we stopped talking very fast. But when I got into drama school and I got into drama school very young, I was 17 and a parent friend who, who was white said to me, she said, you know, you only got in because you're black, right? Me now, 31, absolutely know that at 17, I was advanced for what a 17 year old should be at that point. But 17 year old Nene, who was still working through her insecurities and was still a child being told that had to carry that through for three years thinking, am I only here because I'm black? So even going back to Star Wars, regardless of whether it belonged to Star Wars or not, that feeling of, am I only here because I'm black? It's a very hard thing to unravel. Yeah, the thing is, though, more often than not, black people who get in the positions that you're in have to be so overqualified to get in them. Yes. Right? So it's not the opposite because if they were really checking for black people the way some white folks think they are, then we'd have a lot more than we do. But you have one or two parts that, you know, everybody's because another black actress told me this and it's true. It's like they may have a role for a black woman and they're considering everybody from you to Angela Bassett. That's what you're up against all the time. So, no, it's not the same at all. It's not the same. Mm -mm. And like sometimes I was even writing a piece about it. Like I was like, can't I just be mediocre? Am I allowed? You know we're not allowed to. We either have to be a star or nothing. It's one of the two. It's one or the other. Because I'm tired. Listen, I'm, I'm, so, <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so happy, right? And I'm, I'm tired today, but I'm like spiritually to, to put so much pressure on yourself. Even going back to Whitney, like thinking about that kind of, like put that much pressure on yourself to be that on it for so many years makes you tired. I am tired. <laughs> And like sometimes I just want to be mediocre. Yeah. Why am I bearing the brunt of political whatnots and who who am I meant to be feminine now? Apparently, this whole femininity, feminine power, masculine power shit is really getting to me because I don't know. Don't tell me about myself. Don't tell me what I need to be. <laughs> I heard that. Um, listen, Naomi, before I get you out of here so you can get on with the rest of your day, uh, there's a game I play with every guest who appears on the podcast. It's called This or That. The choice is yours. You can oh. get with this or you can get with that. Or you can oh. get with this or you can get with that. You, can get with this. you get two choices. You gotta pick one. Hermione from Harry Potter or Lyra from His Dark Materials. Yes. His dark materials. His dark materials? Okay. Yeah, that, 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 I, I love them both, but his dark materials, best, best trilogy in the world. Whitney performing I Will Always Love You for Nelson Mandela in South Africa or her singing the national anthem for Super Bowl 25? For me, it's, it's I Will Always Love You. Yeah. So I watched it because I saw it in another interview. You had talked about how meaningful it was. And she sings that song for about 20 minutes. Like she is, she, she is going. Listen. <laughs> And she pauses and then she smiles and then she looks so this magical that that when I first saw that one, because I had never seen it until this film, I was like 
crying. I was the best performance I've ever seen. And finally, Anna, who you play in Lady Macbeth, or Jana, who you play in Star Wars. Ooh, Anna had a really rough time. I'm going to go with Jana. <laughs> Anna had a bad time. <laughs> now, is there, I know that this was kind of intimated that it, or suggested, or out there in the rumor sphere that it might be a spinoff, maybe? Yeah, I had, I had at some point hope so. Who, who really knows? I mean, I'm, let me go and, I'm going to call them. Like, yo. Put it in the atmosphere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can we go? Let me do a thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, listen, it's been such a treat to talk to you. I know that this press run, it, it can be really mentally draining because you're answering all these questions and all these outlets. Yeah. So I appreciate your, your spirit, your career. I cannot wait to see this movie. It comes out two days after my birthday, December 23rd. Woo! Happy birthday. Thank you. I cannot wait to see this because I, I get all the vibes of it's going to be dynamite. <laughs> dynamite. So. Thank you for joining me. Uh, Y'all know the deal. Naomi's getting out of here. You know what's coming up next. Fuck it, I'm bothered. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Time to break you off with the fodder. Fuck it, I'm bothered. Hit you with the spice that I offer. Fuck it, I'm bothered. I was scrolling Instagram and came across something I hadn't seen before ever. Someone posted the instructions of how to make an egg frittata in the air fryer. And fuck it, I'm bothered. Now, I'm not bothered by egg frittatas. They're quite delicious. I'm bothered because it seems like we just get more out of hand with what we make in the air fryer. Now, don't get me wrong. The air fryer is a genius invention. Remember the George Foreman grill? I thought nobody was ever going to invent something that was better than that. And come to think of it, before I proclaimed that the George Foreman grill was the goat invention, I actually thought the microwave was something that could never be topped. Then along came the air fryer, which I think has toppled both. Fried chicken, steak, fish, french fries, certain desserts. These are sensible things that you make with the air fryer. But we have taken that shit too far with the air fryer. Yo, stop putting donuts, bunt cakes, entire hams in the air fryer. Like, we just doing too much. In that one clip, this person put some parchment paper in the air fryer, cracked four eggs, put some bell peppers, other vegetables, and then in, I don't know, 45 minutes, that shit looked like a frittata. And not gonna lie, it did look damn good. But stay unbothered. Time to break you off with the fodder. Fuck it, I'm bothered. Hit you with the spice that I offer. Fuck it, I'm bothered. Uh. My word, how I live, you don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Christina Tapper is our head of content. 
Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Ashley J. Hobbs is our creative producer. Rich Burner is our head of network production. And Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, executive producer is Christina Tapper. And project manager is Jess Borson. Our theme, Word of the Week, and Fuck It, I'm Bothered tracks were written and performed by Brandon Lowe, produced by Lucas Fry and Alexander Hitchens. This or That Music, The Choice is Yours, revisited by Black Sheep, written by Andres Titus, William K. McLean, and Johnny Hammond from Universal Polygram International Publishing, Inc., on behalf of itself and Pete Bow Music. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. This sound like theme music. She dropped word of the week. It's best to use it. Church. Unbothered, never losing. Jamel asked this or that. Get to choosing. Pick one. Child of 7'5 and 21. Wave goodbye to 45. Bye-bye. Don't make me tell you 50, 11 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word. How I live it. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was born to get it. My word, how I live it. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was born to get it.